Good morning, Church at the Red Door. Uh, as we have been for over a year, it's good to, in my mind's eye, see you this morning. Uh, I hope you're thriving. I hope uh, many of you have been vaccinated. I actually got my first vaccine this last week. Left arm's a little sore, but no problems. I'm excited to get through that. I think Laura is coming up for her second. So uh, we're all getting there at, at uh, little by little. So uh, anyway, I know it's been a long time apart, and I hate it. You hate it. We hate it. Again, just to reemphasize, we're doing everything we can. Pray for this week. I mean, this week's a big week for us in terms of we thought two weeks ago, but now this coming week uh, for this uh, planning commission. And just pray pray that this week, if you would, even if you're an online participant. Know that kind of the future of Church at the Red Door uh, is in, impacted significantly by this coming week. So uh, anyway, we're, we're excited to get going here and um, excited for the church to regather. I th I'm, as I've been saying from the beginning, I think the fall, if we can, we can get something earlier than that and move into another place uh, based on what our, again, it has nothing to do. Some of you send me some things uh, weekly uh, as it relates to the government's uh, decisions, the Supreme Court decision as it relates to California. That's really not our issue. Our issue is our ability to get into a facility uh, because we were affiliated with an organization that's not yet allowing us to meet. So that's our that's our place where we find ourselves. So anyway, you ready to roll? Let me just pray briefly. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for Church at the Red Door. I thank you for our community um, online and growing. Lord, we're so grateful that well, we're just so grateful for you. As we see this morning, Lord, you will you have released us from the law in so many different ways, and we'll explain a little bit more of what that means for righteousness' sake. Your law is a reflection of your glory, Lord, but I pray that you would, this is complicated theological issues that we're dealing with here this morning, so I pray that you would drive this into our spirit and not let there be misunderstanding as we try to progress through this gospel of Luke, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, you ready to roll? Here we go. Luke chapter 6, we're beginning Luke 6 this week. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to, as we normally do through this process, try to unpack this, kind of explore what, what's going on here, what are the interdynamics. Again, Jesus is has begun his ministry, and he's now interacting with many of the religious leaders of, of the nation of Israel, and they are not very supportive, the far majority of them. So Luke chapter 6, you ready? Verse 1 through 11. Come on now, let's go. I know it's early. Take that another swig of coffee. Wake up your uh, wake up your spouse, your friend who might be at your group or whatever. Here we go. Luke six one. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. Now what is a Sabbath? A Sabbath is just a, actually a derivation of a, a verb that means to cease. Okay. So and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and then eating it. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on this ceasing day, this Sabbath, this day that we're not supposed to work? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to occur? And Jesus answered and said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat, except for the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now verse 6, another Sabbath 
issue. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely, we see that often, to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. So we know why they were there. They were they were looking for evidence to get to the ultimate place, which was what was already in their heart. We got to get rid of this guy. And the Sabbath law they viewed as being the moment in which they could accuse him on the law. And he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and the hand was restored, and they themselves, now imagine this, were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Now we're going to, there are two scenes here, one in the grain fields, one back in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, but both were Sabbath encounters. We're going to look at the first one and then the second one in a little bit more detail, and we're actually going to go to Mark's account, which adds a little bit more to this scene. And I think hopefully we'll come out of this uh, on the other side and have an ability to kind of understand what was going on and how it will apply to our lives here in the 21st century. It's very relevant. This is not just something that happened, well, we're not under the law anymore, and we know that they were. It's much deeper than that, and I, and I hope that we can get through this. I've entitled the more, uh, message this morning, Missing the Point Badly, but equally it could have been, and again, I use uh, the renowned, um, he since passed, but Christopher Hitchens in his book, God is Not Great, and of course I I scribbled out not, <laughs> God is great, but uh, anyway, thank goodness I got 30% off on my book. But anyway, uh, it, his subtitle is How Religion Poisons Everything. How Religion Poisons Everything. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, at times, I think that's exactly right. Religion, again, we've defined it before. I had heard it said once, and now I've claimed it for my own. Religion is man's attempt to get to God, and then, of course, Jesus was then God's attempt to get to man. But religion can poison things, and in this very case, it's poisoning it badly. They are missing the point badly, and Jesus confronts them on it. And so we've got to try to figure out, well, first of all, what was the Sabbath? Well, in, in, a, in Mark's account, and I believe it's Mark chapter 2, Jesus had said, look, the Sabbath was created for man. Man wasn't created to live into a Sabbath. In other words, the very purpose of ceasing was for the, the thriving, the, the beauty to try to, to try to give rest to men. Now, you've got to understand this is significant because let me just ask you a question. Do, have you ever thought about, you know, we just take it for granted in Western culture. Boy, you know, what is it? It's TGIF. There's a whole, there was a whole chain of restaurants. TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Why? Because the weekend's coming. Do you realize that the weekend is derived out of God's law to Moses? Now you say, well, I'm sure there were many other cultures that had embraced a, a day off. Absolutely not. In fact, let me read uh, from John Dixon's book here and listen to what he says. He says this. He says, 
these were also considered unlucky days. What's he talking about? He was talking about, well, in Greco-Roman world, there were days that they kind of took off in some ways, but they were considered unlucky days. It had nothing to do with rest and recuperation. There were a few days occasionally in the calendar that were taken off, but by and large, here's what he says, they had nothing to do with promoting rest and recuperation as much as it galls some historians to concede it really does look like those ancient Jews invented the tradition of a weekend off for everybody. And of course, he goes on to say, for the theologically minded, which is us, obviously, I should, of course, say that God invented it. The authoritative anchor Bible dictionary acknowledges this. Listen, in spite of all the extensive efforts of more than a century of study in extra-Israelite Sabbath origins, it's still shrouded in mystery. No hypothesis commands the respect of a scholarly consensus. Every hypothesis or combination of hypotheses has insurmountable problems. The quest for the origin of a Sabbath outside of the Old Testament cannot be pronounced to have been successful. In other words, where did we get the Sabbath? Where did we get this idea of the weekend? I mean, even the we all celebrate it, and we just we assume that it was always kind of the fabric of human society. In fact, if you go back and you go back to well, let's let's talk about the first few commandments. There were the first three commandments that related. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments that related specifically to God. You will you should have no other gods before me. Okay, don't create any image. And then also thirdly, then we have this picture of well, don't misuse my name. Those are the first three. And then we have the fourth, and it's Sabbath related. Now think about this. It's both positive and negative. It's both cease, but also do. In other words, six days you shall work, but then on the seventh you should rest. Now you've got to understand for, for well, this is still true today, for all of human history. The wealthy, those that were in power, did everything they could not to work. That's still the case. Anything we can do not to work. And the Bible gives us a real definitive place that you actually should work. Now, I say even today, there. in fact, if you look at the consequences of not working, uh, people die earlier when they're not involved in community. Some kind of participation. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to come in and punch your card until you're, until you're, you know, breathe your last. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with retirement in terms of your primary uh, vocation in your life. However, you have to be involved contributing member of society based on your ability and financially and otherwise and, and how healthy you are, but there should be some involvement. That's one of the things at Church of the Red Door we try to do. We have a lot of people here in the Palm Springs area that no longer are working the nine to five. And we give them opportunities or try to connect them to opportunities where they can be a valuable part of their community. Why? Because it's healthy. Keeps them healthy. And, and the inverse is true. If you don't work or you don't rest, if you work all the time and never rest, well, that brings up all kinds of issues. And God, of course, knows this. The Sabbath was made for man. God created this ceasing for men. So historically, the rich were trying not to work and the poor worked all the time and they never had an opportunity not to not work. They worked seven days a week and they died early and so we see two sides. So this is really saying work, yes, it's good, it's productive, it's God, the God's very origins, you know, go in the garden and take dominion and, and rule over the, the, the animal kingdom, etc. 
And then also you have this picture of, but you also need to cease from your work at least once a week. And what, even our idea of week and comes from this Genesis idea of six days. It, we're not going to talk about the actual literal or figurative meaning of all that right now, but the picture is six days and then rest, six days and rest. And what you also have to understand, and we get this in Hebrews chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 9, that it's also, it's a picture of things to come. It's a picture, it's a sign of salvation, if you will. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, I believe it's verse 15, it says, I'm the one, I'm God, who brought you out of the house of slavery. Therefore, observe the Sabbath. Now, why, why, how are those connected? Well, I've brought you out of the world, and therefore, you need to rest. In other words, there's a coming day of rest. Salvation in its very essence is a picture of rest. I mean, so this is how we should understand the Sabbath, and this is how Jesus is trying to confront their nitpicking stuff, as we will see, their religiosity, that said, essentially, no, man is made for God's laws. No, God's laws were made for man. The purpose of God's laws are to keep us healthy and vibrant and relating to one another and healthy communities and everything else. The law is the most beautiful thing that God has ever given us. Now, I'm not going to go into the breaking down of the 613, but at least the Ten Commandments are a real strong structure. And then some of the other commandments are, in some people's eyes, more like case law. But the foundations of God's very love of humanity he gives us, and this is one of them. You need to rest. And some of you need to work. But some of you need to rest. In fact, all of you need to rest at least at least a day of the week. And what would that look like? Well, they had built up all kinds of things around that. Can I tell you, first of all, let's take the first scene when they were in the grain fields. Did you know that God's provision had already said they could do this. This is not a Sabbath-related issue. They weren't. In other words, the issue wasn't that they were stealing. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25 says, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield the sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, if you're in your neighbor's uh, field there and they have a little bit of extra grain, you can take it with your hand. You can't go in there and chop down their whole crop and then put it in your barn. But if you have a need and you're hungry and you're in your neighbor's, you can take a little bit of grain with your hand. And so God had already given provision for that. So this wasn't an issue of theft. This strictly revolved around the Sabbath issue. And, and again, what were they doing? They were seeking to accuse Jesus so they could find him guilty of the law and eventually do away with him. That's what we're seeing here. So there's a, there's a few things, a few observations that I have immediately, and then I'm going to go back and look at these scenes a little bit more specifically. But first of all, they had established their own traditions. He has had nothing. And again, we've talked about this at length at various points, but many of the religious leaders had, here's the law, and then we'll build fences around it. And uh, because of that, then it became absurd, and it became a weighty burden on the people. And the Sabbath law was one of them. Again, Jesus, look, look, he's saying in Mark 2, he's saying, the Sabbath was created for man. In other words, this is a benefit to man, not a weight to be carried by men. But all their traditions had made it a weighty thing. And two, uh, this can happen to us so easily. We don't dance. We don't drink. Uh, there's Sabbatarians who say it's on Friday to Saturday because that's what the Bible says. There's others. 
you know, there's nothing wrong with this, but we can create tradition so quickly and so out of right field. We don't even understand how we spend our money, how, what entertainment we're involved in, uh, our worship style and services. You know, these are our traditions. Well, we're used to a piano, drums are of the devil. Yeah, I mean, we got all kinds of things that go on that traditions, because this is how we've seen religion done. Therefore, this is how religion has to do. And we miss the point badly. What was Jesus trying to get to here? Is it lawful to heal a man or to destroy a man? What, what is lawful on the Sabbath? What's the purpose of the Sabbath? And lastly, and this goes for us today and has for 2,000 years of Christian history, and I hate to talk about this kind of stuff, but it's true. It was overt. Their lack of compassion was nauseating. It was overt. It was, here's a man with a, a withered hand for... God knows how long, and he's healed. His whole life's going to be changed. Uh, you know, a, a man who maybe have been disabled can contribute to their community. I mean, there's so many good things, and just the sense that another human being's not going to be suffering like this. And all they could feel was anger and rage. And we say, bad, how, how could they? Those religious leaders, and yet we do the same. There are times when we are so quick to defend our religious traditions. And I'm going to talk a little bit. There is balance in this. Look, this is not about saying it's a free-for-all and just, you know, kind of love everybody because God's law itself is God's way of loving humanity and helping us. We need speed limits, if you will, because when we speed, we kill people. We kill ourselves. We kill others. We impact those around us. But boy, can we become compassionless people in the name of religion. It happens so quickly. So uh, I'm gonna give you a quick story. Back in 1992, there was an Orthodox community. And again, this happens both with those still trying to adhere to the law and not many of those around. I mean, of all the those identifying as Jews today, maybe 7% are what would be considered Orthodox today. Most, most of our Jewish friends, um, are rarely even practice. Uh, they may even be secular in a sense and maybe not even believe in a God. So it's not an identifiable, but by their birth, they're Jewish and they hold to the, some of the traditions of their, of their cultural heritage. But this Orthodox community in 1992, listen, this approach in the Sabbath continues today among many Orthodox Jews. In early 1992, tenants let three apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground while they ask a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. Imagine, this is exactly what was happening here with this encounter with Jesus in Luke 6. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. In the half hour it took the rabbi to decide, yes, the fire spread to two neighboring apartments. Now, you say, well, that's absurd. Well, so is this encounter in Luke 6. It's absolutely absurd. But before we just pile on to Jews of our day or, or the, Jew, the religious Jews that lived during the time of Jesus, we have, to turn the same, we have to turn the same microscope on the Christian community for the last 2,000 years. In the name of Christ, some of the most incredible atrocities have occurred, not the least of which were the Inquisitions. Imagine the torture and the things that went uh, along with those who, if you didn't confess, then we're going to torture you. In the name of religion, in the name of Jesus, in the name of, of really? 
Are you out of your minds? Are you missing the point so badly it's beyond our comprehension? Yes. But we're all subject to that. I wish we weren't, but we are all subject to allowing religions, traditions, religious traditions to define and shape our lives, our traditions. Now, the, the intent of the law is simple, and we'll see that before we close here. But we can miss the point as they miss the point. So it's not just 2,000 years ago they were missing the point. We, too, are guilty often of missing the point. So the question is, how does this happen? How can, how can, these things, how can we drift so far from the intent and the meaning of God's moral direction for us? How can we happen? Well, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, clearly says, well, the heart, it's more deceitful than everything else, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand the heart? Boy, we are a mixed bag. We love the wrong things. Uh, there's a long process by which the Holy Spirit begins to do a deep, penetrating work for us. Even for those who are already part of the family, who've already given their lives to Christ, we still and often love the wrong things. And sometimes we love our religious traditions above loving people. We have to be cautious. I'm going to read something to you here from Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 7. And I'm going to leave out, strategically leave out, one of the verses as we go along, and I'm going to come back and fill it in. For at the window of my house is about a young man looking out and seeing a prostitute. Okay? Oh, we don't talk about that. Yes, we do, because the Bible talks about it. For at the window of my house I looked out through the lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and... He takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Now, notice. And her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. And so she seizes him and kisses him and with a brazen face. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings of, and with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband, while well, he's not at home, he's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. And with her many persuasions, she entices him. And with flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways." What are her ways? Seductive and arrogant. She's not willing to stay at home. She's boisterous. Do not stray into her past, for many are the victims she has cast down. Numerous are her slain. Her house is the way to shield, descending to the chambers of death. So this is an amazing picture. It just it conjures up images. You can just see it. I, I, I picture, for me, I picture being in a the island of Spain, uh, Mallorca, I've been many times and there's these little narrow streets that have cobblestones and 
you can kind of look and I stay in a, in a th it's like three or four stories high and I can look down and sit out and watch the people walking to the square. And as it begins to get a little bit more dark and uh, fewer and fewer people come and, and then occasionally you'll just see one. And once it's kind of dark, uh, you can still see a few street lights. And I imagine in my mind, this conjures up a young man kind of walking through the streets and I, and I can see this this harlot over here, uh, there's, my, there's my victim. And you can see it all playing out. And that's how I picture this scene. And he's going to his death. Does that mean spiritually or literally? Because her husband's going to find out and try to go after him. I, I don't know all what that means, but I think for us, certainly there's a spiritual application. I mean, this kills your soul. These kinds of activities kill your soul. It's difficult. Now, why would I bring this up in the context of, of the law and how, you know, how desperately sick we are? Because I, I told you I was going to leave out one verse. I'm going to go back to verse 14, 13 and 14. So she seizes him and kisses him with a brazen face and she says to him, now catch this, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Can you see that? I mean, she was... She considered herself a religious person. And yet the corresponding life, I mean, they were a million miles apart, just like these religious Jews in the time of Jesus. We're the godly ones. We love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know he's revealed his character to us, and yet we want to kill him. We're looking to seize him. They felt emboldened by their traditions. They thought they were the good guys, and he was the bad guy. She thinks here, she says, I'm the good person. I've paid my vows. Today's the day I'm going to do it. Right in the midst of something that is so contrary to the heart of God that it seems wildly hypocritical. Are there areas in our lives that are that hypocritical? Trapp says this in commentating about, giving some commentary on verse 14 about this harlot. She pretends religion pretends to her filthy practices. So did King Edward IV's holy whore, as he used to call her, that came to him out of a nunnery when he used to call for her. I mean, this is the human condition. We want to do what we're going to do. We want to live the life we want to live, and yet we're not afraid of sprinkling some religion on it or even using religion to oppress, to inflict pain, and, not, and certainly not to celebrate life-giving things to, to humanity around us. We are truly, as Jeremiah had seen, desperately sick. So number one, we're desperately sick. That's how these things happen. Number two, we love to judge and be in charge of other people. Control other people. We love power. Galatians 4, Paul is chastising this new church here in this Galatian region. And uh, this church was constantly, constantly tempted to return to the structured laws and traditions of the past. And, uh, and there's some strange comfort in this. But listen to what he says. Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, okay, he's talking to the church here in Galatia, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brothers, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong. 
You know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe, and that sense of blessing you guys used to have. For I bear witness that if possible, will you have plucked out your eyes and given them to me? So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So they, the religious Jews of the day that were trying to pull them back into the traditions and the constraints, they eagerly seek you, but not commendably. They wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you and to change my tone, but I am perplexed about you people. Do you really want to go back to this religious, traditional kind of thing that was binding you in the first place? And the only reason they're trying to draw you in and shut you out is to draw you back in. Excuse me, the only reason they're really trying to shut you out is so they can so that you'll seek them. They're using their traditions and they're putting the guilt trip on you and all these other kinds of things. That's what, well, that's what we also do. We want power and control, so we use the guilt trip. We get people to give through a guilt trip. We give, you know, we, we, we are, again, desperately sick. And religion is often used to gain power and control. This is what was exactly happening with these religious Jews of Jesus' day. They could see that the crowds were beginning to follow them. And over and over you see, and it angered them, and they were jealous in their hearts because they wanted the control. So they were using their traditions and law to keep people in subjection to themselves. Now look, you have to be cautious of any spiritual Jesus-centric community that begins to try to dominate and control through these kinds of tactics. They're seeking you, but not commendably. They're trying to, you know, use traditions and things. If you do that, you're, you don't know Jesus. If you do, I mean, just over and over. I'll never forget speaking one time at a church and, and I sat in on a Sunday school before and the pastor just berated the people and berated the people and berated the people. I was like, what is he doing? I mean, it was, it was such a abuse of power. I couldn't believe it. Then I went to the sanctuary and there were just, it was almost empty. That's probably because I was speaking, but... It was almost empty, and I looked around. The few people that were there just looked so beaten up. Boy, our traditions can grab hold of us when we think we're doing God's business, and we are actually finding ourselves, as they did, not loving life and thriving of life. Thirdly, we love the feeling of exclusivity that is often, again, sometimes money-driven, but Luke 16, 14, and 15. Now, the Pharisees, now we're trying to get into their psyche, they were lovers of money, and they were listening to these things and scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, and that, was high, that which is highly esteemed among men, well, it's detestable in the eyes of God. They were wrongly motivated. Not only was their heart sick, they wanted to control, but they were also, many of them, lovers of money. And so again, they wanted control so that they wouldn't lose their idol, and their idol in this place was a place of exclusivity that was purchased for them, highly esteemed among men, purchased for them through the almighty dollar. Well, not dollar for them, but dollar for us. And then lastly, we love forms of religion. 
without the corresponding power of relationship. It just is. It keeps us large and in charge. And Paul had warned Timothy about this. Religion's going to creep in. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Men are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutals, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, you want to talk about it, get a list of things. I don't want to be any of those, but guess what? Verse 5 says, holding to a form of godliness, but they've denied the very power of it. And it says, avoid such men as these. Paul's telling Timothy, you have to avoid this crowd. They're going to look like the good guys, but deep down, they are selfishly motivated. They are driven not by life, but by their control. Watch out. Do you know how many people have come into a place of maybe a faith community, and then they see this, and they are scarred for life, and they said, if this is Christianity, I don't want any part of it? Boy, we have to be so cautious. Are you motivated? Are you, are you holding more tenaciously to your traditions? I'm not talking about the core moral law of God's directives because that is freeing and liberating, again, like a speed limit. But the reality is, is that we have to understand that we cannot be a stumbling stone for people. We cannot if we hold more to our traditions. They were just eating some grain in a field. Deuteronomy even allowed them to do that. Violating the traditions, violating the Sabbath. Was that really violating the Sabbath? Jesus had used this example of David, you know, when David was running from Saul and, and they were here and they, they allowed them. They were hungry they were, and they went in and they took some of the consecrated bread. That's what Jesus was referring to. He said, look, even David did this. He's, you know, he's your great king hero of all of Israel, you know, uh, one of your forefathers in, in faith. He was a, God, a man after God's own heart. But he understood that the Sabbath was made for man. And of course, Jesus is making another de declaration here too. He says, I'm actually the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> another claim to divinity. I created all this and you're telling me, you're instructing me on my intent for the Sabbath? That's, what Je that's the underlying tone here too. I'm the one who created you and I created the Sabbath for you and I'm using the Sabbath to give life and healing and you're using the Sabbath to try to kill me, to catch me. That's what religion does. It holds tenaciously to its traditions. I say religion, some forms of religion, holds tenaciously to forms of tra and traditions and denies what God loves. I said lastly, I have one other thing I want to add to this in terms of how can this happen? How can we drift so far from the intent of the moral law? Well, lastly, we're just experts in missing the point. It's so easy to do. Listen to Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. And okay, so now he's going to begin to articulate. What are the weighty provisions of the law? He says it. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. He's not telling them, 
you know, don't worry about the ceremonial law and all that. Many of these laws were very important for them because they were giving a picture of Jesus and they would explain him being the ultimate lamb of God. And I could go into many other things. But these are what you should really cling to. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. He said, then he says this, you are blind guides. You strain out a gnat. All right, just a minute. I have a gnat. All right. Send in the gnats. All right. Okay, here's a gnat. I don't really have one. Here's a gnat. And we're straining it out and we're trying to get a gnat. And here you have it. Strain out a gnat. You can't. No, you can't do that. You can't. That's a violation of the Sabbath tradition. Why are they eating? Because they're hungry. That's why they're eating. Why are you healing that man's hand? Because he's in pain. He's suffering. His family can't have a, a job. I mean, of course, that's why I'm bringing life and, and, and love and mercy and faithfulness and compassion to my creation. No, 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 no. You're violating the Sabbath. Here's that straining out a gnat. said, you strain out a gnat. I'm sorry. This is the best I've got. I ask Laura, do we have any camels? And you swallow a camel. You're, you're swallowing a camel. You're straining out a gnat. And then the very thing, you know, I don't want to strain this out and then I'll eat it. But then you swallow a camel. This is not a camel. But it's the closest I could get. It's a llama from what I understand. But it looked kind of like a camel. So you're straining out a gnat and then you're swallowing a camel. Do we do that? Do you do that? Do I do that? Oh, God, I don't want to do that. I want to have compassion. Anything that gives life and liberty and freedom and, and the, the fullness of life to people. I want to be a participant in that. While all the time balancing and understanding, yes, there are speed limits. I'm never going to preach that you can do anything you want, sexually or otherwise. Just do what you feel because it gives you life and liberty because I believe that when God says don't do something, it's for our benefit. But I cannot then establish, I you know, frames of mind. I don't hang out with those people. I don't spend any time with those people. I'm straining out of that because my traditions say that we don't, you know, we don't dance and we don't drink and we don't hang around with people who do that. That would be straining out of that and swallowing a camel of compassion. Do those people need Jesus? Yes, they do. Do I have to hang out with them to preach the gospel? Yeah. Church at the Red Door will always be a missional community. We will always have people hanging out with other people who will be accused of just like Jesus would be. If we're doing our job, we're going to be so engaged in our community offering life and mercy and the grace of God, offering that message, and our compassionate concern about their lives. It was a horror show when, you know, when AIDS came down uh, all those years ago. Not many people, some people still dying, it's still an issue. But when AIDS came down and the church turned and said, see, there's what you get. That's what you get. But many did not do that. Many were on the front line and said, we will serve this community and show them the love and the mercy of God. But it just strikes me, is there anything in my heart that would not be driven by mercy and love and kindness and faithfulness and celebrate at life-giving, well, healings and when people are fed and I think you get the point.
Look, folks, in the end, here's the problem. We're fearful of following the voice of the Lord. <laughs> or we haven't even experienced it. You have to listen to the voice of the Lord. He's going to lead you into places that, oh, can I do that as a Christian? I mean, this is Jesus. We have to be led by the Lord's voice. He will send us to places that some in the Christian tradition and religion would say, you can't be there, you can't do that, you can't hang out with those people because of traditions or, or their own sense of being right and wrong. It's more comfortable to hold to meaningless traditions. It just gives us some, well, it's like the harlot in Proverbs 7. She felt some real comfort and balance in her life. You know, it, 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 it helped her conscience, I guess. I mean, here she was committing adultery and then she's going to go pay her vows. Somehow it balances out, helps her get up in the morning. Well, I paid my vows. We have to be cautious. And lastly, we have to understand self-congratulatory, sometimes we can become, regarding our religious practices and often avoid the refining work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, religion is a nice hiding place. The Holy Spirit's always wanting to change our heart, make us more loving and compassionate towards our fellow man, towards God, towards, you know. And, and what happens, the Spirit does that deep and abiding work, but when we become so self-congratulatory that our, it's more about our traditions and upholding our traditions and not, not mixing with any evil, of course God doesn't want you to mix with evil, but he want, he, we have to mix with evil to give the message. You know, uh, the second part, I'm, I'm going to go back before we close here. I'm going to have uh, our dear friends, Bob and Joan Thompson. I believe they are doing this from uh, Oregon, and they're up in Salem, Oregon. And I have asked them to read Mark 3, 1 through 6. Now, it's a different recounting of this exact scene, but it adds a different thing that Jesus said. It adds an addition. Now, remember, the gospel, this is why I believe in the gospels, why they, I believe they're authentic. Because if I'm describing an event that occurred and I said, well, you know, Ted told Fred that, you know, they were going to go play golf at 930 and then afterwards they were going to have lunch. And then he gives a, he gives something and he said, well, Ted told Fred that they were going to play golf. Well, he didn't say anything about lunch. This must be not authentic. Well, that's just natural. We don't mention everything. And so here in Luke's account, he, he talks about exactly what Jesus said. But here Mark adds a dimension of what something else that Jesus said during this time of this encounter. And so, Thompsons, we love you, all the way from Oregon. Would you please read Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6. Hello, Trish at the Red Door. We're the Thompsons. I'm Bob. And I'm Joan. And we're in Salem, Oregon today, where it's a beautiful sunny day, but we still miss the desert. We miss all of you, and we look forward to the day we're all back together again, but uh, for today, we're uh, pleased to be able to read the scripture. It comes from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with a withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. 
The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. That's the reading from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Back to you, Jeff. So did you catch that, especially here in verse 5? It adds this new thing, because it doesn't, we didn't get this in Luke's account. But it said, in looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at their religious shell, their hardness of their heart, hiding in religion. He was angry. Is God angry? Why, why does God get angry? Because he's offended, because he's, you know, he's big ego, and he doesn't, if things don't go his way, he stomps around. No. God is angry because his creation suffers. He's angry that they're so hard of heart that they're going to suffer. They'll reject him. And in rejecting him, they'll reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob himself. He's angry at that. He's angry at the hardness of their heart. You say, well, does God change from Old Testament to New? Well, no. God's always, always cared and loved the right things. Hosea 6, 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. This would be the harlot in Proverbs chapter 7. That was part of the ceremonial law. And in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. God, even in the Old Testament, is saying, this is what I delight in. I delight in loyalty. I don't sacrifice. He's the one that told him to sacrifice, but there was a different purpose for it. I delight in this. I delight in the knowledge of God much more than I do in burnt offerings. God's always said the same thing. Is there a balance? Of course there is. But part of being salt and light, the pillar and support of the truth, the community, the church, and engaging our culture, we have to tell the truth. We have to talk about what's good and what's bad. We have to. But we cannot miss the ever-present voice of the Holy Spirit. When we're attentive to this voice, we will be well-balanced. The Holy Spirit will never guide us into a place that God doesn't want us to go. He'll never tell us to, to violate, well, uh, even our own laws. The Bible's clear. We should be subject to the local laws. But we have to love this healing and restoration that happens in people's hearts, and that's what the Holy Spirit's voice leads us to do. And our traditions in holding to what we perceive to be traditions can at time badly miss the point. Well, I don't worship to that kind of music because, or I don't do this. Look, is that really the heartbeat of that? Maybe somebody next to you is having a deep moment, a spiritual uh, moment with God because of a particular style of worship or because of something, but, but you feel like you're, maybe you grew up in a place where you, they didn't believe in instruments or it was only, you know, it was only hymns or it was only... Little things like that can get in and we say, well, these, this is how it has to be done. God loves the good. Did you know that God's moral law is just a reflection of his very own nature? The intent of the moral law, what does he love? That's the question. I love, in closing, G.K. Chesterton. Listen to what he says. First of all, a secular world, we don't even, they don't even have a foundation to talk about good anymore. If a materialistic worldview, most of our secularists, 
It's a materialistic world good. They can say good or bad, but that's like, well, who who establishes that? If you do away with God, you don't you don't really have morality. You have cultures that may tend to cling to something, you know, historically or otherwise about what's good. It's not a common like many of the modern day atheists will say, this is common sense. Well, it's not common sense. Back in the Greco-Roman days, I mean, it was common sense for them to have men sleeping with young boys as kind of part of this ritual religious practices. And that was common sense to them. It was common sense to have women as property. It was common sense. You cannot say it's just common sense. A lot of what we perceive to be common sense today was actually built on God's nature because like we saw with Sabbath, you know, it's good to take a day off. Yeah, weekend's coming. That was that was God giving us some, some constraints. You know, you should treat others like this. Well, you know, okay. Every man should do what's right. Well, is that, you know. Look, listen to what G.K. Chesterton says. A great silent collapse, an enormous unspoken disappointment has in our time fallen on northern civilization. All previous ages have sweated and been crucified in an attempt to realize what is really the right life, what was really the good man. But a definite part of modern world has come beyond question to the conclusion that there is no answer to these questions. What is good? Well, we don't know. That the most that we have to do is set up a few you know, notice boards along the way, places of obvious danger to warn men, for instance, against drinking themselves to death or ignoring the mere existence of their neighbors. Every one of the popular phrases and ideals, this is a secular world without God, is a dodge in order to shirk the problem of what is good. We are fond of talking about liberty. That, as we talk of it, is a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. We are fond of talking about progress. Well, that too is a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. We are fond of talking about education. Well, it's a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. The modern man says, let us leave all these arbitrary standards and embrace liberty. This is logically rendered, catch this, let us not decide to do what is good, but let it be considered good not to decide. Away with your old moral formula, secular man would say, I am for progress. This logically stated means, well, let us not settle what is good, but let us settle whether we are getting more of it. And then lastly, he says, neither in religion or morality, my friend, lie the hope of the races, but in education. This clearly expressed means we cannot decide what is good, but let us give it to our children anyway. The secular society's stuck. They can't even articulate what's good. So they use words like education and progress and all these other kinds of things, which is just dodging the issue of intrinsically what is good, what is founded in God's very nature. The last verse we're looking at this morning is simply Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. You want to know what God says is good? Again, this is being written 700 years before the time of Jesus. God's already told him what he thinks is good. You ready? Here it is. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. And if anybody plucks any grains up, no, that's not what he says. God tells you what is good. Here it is. 
the, what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness. Had those religious Jews loved kindness, do you think they would have been upset that when the disciples were hungry that they were you know, taking a little grain in their hands, as was allowed by the law, and eating it? You know, sometimes I uh, am in Israel. Some of you have been with me. And on the Sabbath, you can go in and they have elevators that, you know, even pressing a button to go to your floor, the traditions of many of the Orthodox, you can't even press a button to go to your floor. So what happens is that you have to stop. You can be in a 20-story building. You have to stop at every single floor because it would be work to say I'm on floor number eight and hit eight and then go there. That's work. So as a result, it takes... All this extra time to go to one, open the doors, nobody's there, close. Go to floor two, open the doors, nobody's there, close the doors. You wonder why people look at this and go, well, that's just crazy. And so was this encounter. They were hungry. They ate on the Sabbath. This man had been in this condition for years and he's healed. Everybody should be celebrating. And they're angry. Something really wrong. Hold on. They're radically disconnected from their father. The very one that they were ostensibly supporting. Have you done that in your life? Is there something that the Lord is now putting on your own heart? Where maybe you say, well, you know, I've got to cling to these traditions. Now again, I'm not talking about the moral direction that God gives us. I'm talking about things that you couldn't, you can try to make a defense, but it's really indefensible. And they're bringing pain and causing suffering and, and they don't make you happy either. What does the Lord love? He loves, he loves you walking humbly with him and he loves justice and he loves mercy and kindness and faithfulness. He, these are the things that God loves. Don't let religion get in the way of adopting God's heart for humanity. That's the message. I think that's what I get from this account in Luke 6. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful for you this morning. Um, be praying again this week for uh, this meeting that will occur. We just pray, Lord, right now that you will lead us to the exact right spot you have for our future, where we think we're being strategically planned, placed by this particular location. And we ask that you would touch people's hearts, those in the decision-making process, and touch our Touch our lives so that, Lord Jesus, we might touch the lives of those people who will come in contact with this physical place called Church of the Red Door, which we pray is unfiltered you. Lord, just take our bodies. I pray right now, just anybody who would just use our bodies to convey the love and the compassion that you truly have for all of humanity. Amen. Hope you have a wonderful week. We love you.